he's taught himself how to use a 3D modeling software application. Using my eyes. Using his eye gaze. And he is, he's been designing a box to hold a circuit board that will add more switches to a chair so that you can control more devices by switching. And once he gets his system, then he's got to figure out how to write the program to run it. So I've merely been dabbling in coloring book pages, but Donnie's been programming. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host in North Carolina, Jeremy Holden. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. How you doing this week? Doing all right. Doing all right. Hanging in there. You know, I often point out that you are on the East Coast in North Carolina, and I am in Minnesota because thanks to the power of modern technology, it doesn't really matter where you live if you're jointly hosting a podcast, but the place you call home does impact pretty much every other facet of your life, including whether you experience how much you pay for housing and things like the health resources to which you have access. And at this moment in time, where you are in the world could mean many different things in relation to the pandemic and what's happening in your community. And this week, Jeremy, we spoke with Donnie Graham and Jan Steinbach. They are in Portland, Oregon. And their current reality is a lot tougher than what most of us are dealing with. Yeah, that's right, Mike. I had a great opportunity to hear from them on the ground as they're you know, right at the foothills of the wildfires that I'm sure many of our listeners are following very closely. I'm sure many of our listeners are directly impacted by those. And as you said, Mike, amongst all the other things that, that Jan and Donnie are dealing with, living with ALS, living with ALS during a global pandemic, add on top of that, living with ALS during a global pandemic with wildfires just down the road, mm. hearing from them about how one copes with that was just humbling and, and quite inspiring. Yeah, listening back to our conversation with Donnie and Jana, I'm struck by how calm and courageous they are in the face of such adversity. And I, I'm sure they have their moments when they feel like they don't have it all figured out, but I was just amazed at how prepared they are for each challenge that 2020 throws their way. But it'll be better if you hear about it from them. So let's listen back to the interview now. We are joined on the phone today by Donnie and Jan from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to uh, Connecting ALS to the two of you, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. So uh, Jeremy and I are hoping to talk to you really about the year 2020, what things have been like for you this year, how they've changed since the pandemic, and really how you're getting by these days. But before we get into all of that, if you wouldn't mind, Donnie and Jan, add your thoughts as well, please, but could you tell our listeners a little bit about your ALS diagnosis and kind of where your journey began. Well, I was uh, diagnosed in the fall of, of 2014. Hmm. Um, I'd had about a year and a half of symptoms trying to figure out what was wrong. And um, it was difficult to diagnose because I was respiratory onset. Hmm. And uh, when they 
they finally diagnosed me. I was already on a, um, a ventilator. Um, and uh, it's progressed obviously fairly slowly, you know, because it's been several years. But I'm pretty much paralyzed from the, the neck down. Hmm. And uh, I breathe 100% on uh, mechanical ventilation. Sure. So the one thing is, is um, and you can you see I'm still talking. So bulbar has been the last thing to affect me, and it's just starting to. Donnie, Jan, you guys are coming to us from the great state of Oregon. Of course, Oregon has been in the news along with other West Coast states dealing with wildfires the last you know week or so. Can you talk to us a little bit about where things stand for you, any impact that's had, and, and how you're managing life with ALS during these historic wildfires? Well, we are in Clackamas County, just outside of Portland, and but we're tucked right up against southwest portland so we're in the opposite corner of the county from where the fires have been burning which has been good um last week the entire county was put on level one evacuation but because we were so far away from the fires we didn't feel like we were likely to need to evacuate unless something new started closer to where we lived so in a way it's been a good exercise in emergency planning and thinking about, you know, just walking through the house or doing things during the day and thinking on top of what we normally pack, we've gone on several car trips since Donnie was diagnosed. So on top of what I would normally pack for a car trip, what else would I want to take? What would I want to make sure is in the car for his safety, for his comfort, for being able to take care of him? You know, if we ended up at somebody else's house and then thinking about you know, what would a potential host appreciate us bringing along because what might be in short supply? And then if something really did threaten our home, what would we absolutely want to make sure went with us in the way of memories? Our, our house is full of artwork that was created by his family. And he has several relatives who have been painters and two of those painters have died. And so there'd be no way to replace their artwork. So those were things that came to mind. Some photos of my mother and my, my dad from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And she's already got the Hoyer in the back. Uh, yeah, and I, and I was uh -huh. worried about the power being turned out because our kids, who are also in Clackamas County, had their power shot off because these mm. wildfires were driven by really historically high winds, like hurricane-force winds. So mm -hmm. the power company was shutting off power to large sections of our county just to preemptively keep sparks from flying if trees went down, things like that. And so I was like, we have a manual lift for when we go on trips, but I wouldn't be able to get to it in the garage very easily because I wouldn't be able to open up the garage door if the power was out. I right. could, but it wouldn't be easy. So we loaded up that in the car just to make sure. So it was just... And we got the generator out and our son fired it up to make sure it's right. working yeah mm. in case we it's all hooked up to a gas bottle and ready to go 
between Donnie's wow. trilogy ventilators and his chair and the need to be able to keep batteries recharged to use in an emergency, we cannot go without power. And we have enough batteries to get us somewhere between 24 and 48 hours, but that's it. After that, we'd be out. So the generator mm-hmm. was pretty key also. But wow. essentially, it's been a good exercise in thinking through a lot of things and, and checking how well we, how prepared we are. So fortunately, I didn't have to go any farther than that. Wow. Well, it sounds like you are very prepared. What an incredible amount of foresight the two of you have had in preparing for that sort of situation. And this has to be the last thing that you needed this year on top of already living with a challenging diagnosis, which you've had for several years and then and being in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And, and being in the midst of a global pandemic. And then on top of that, you get these natural disasters. Oh, I just can't imagine what yeah. that must be like. I want to. This year it just keeps on giving. <laughs> it really does. It really does. 2020 has been incredible. I want to rewind just a little bit though, talking about the months and even the first few years following your diagnosis, Donnie, how the two of you, once you had some time to kind of process what the diagnosis meant and, and how you wanted to think about your both your day-to-day and your future together, what was your mindset about the road ahead? How did you want to spend your future together? Well, um, not doing this. <laughs> Um, well, we, um, you know, Jan was all in, which was great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we started thinking about, you know, those questions, what we're going to do. And, you know, or, um, of course, you know, you have to think about insurances and, you know, all the, you know, things for notifying doctors and you have to think about whether you, you know, what you want for your medical wishes. And we did that. And, you know, I, I had decided to, that I was, I really uh, wanted to live and willing to go whatever was needed, including a trade. Mm-hmm. which I've been able to hold off on. I think one of the big factors was Donnie is because he started with respiratory onset, which is really unusual for ALS. Um, I used to judge that he must have had a vision of being trached and carrying a dragging a respirator around on a little cart behind him as he walked around and did everything he wanted to do. Because when he was first diagnosed, there was no limb or bulbar symptoms. It was just all respiratory. So I think that really influenced his idea about what he'd be able to do and how he wanted it going forward. Well, since breathing issues are usually what ends up at the very end for people, I figured without a trach, I wouldn't have much time. Hmm. But amazingly enough, here I am still without one. But we sat down with the children to tell them about it and, you know, and talk about the fact that I'll have some time to do stuff. So what do we want to do? Mm-hmm. 
and um, we did some family things together. We did a big family trip. We we went uh, on some trips ourselves. Hmm. So yeah, I think for me one of the big things is how it changed our relationship. Johnny and I had been together over 15 years mm-hmm. when he was diagnosed. We weren't married. We were living together, but our relationship had always been very much based on us being two individuals who really like each other and chose to be together. And we weren't super entwined, dependent on each other. Mm-hmm. We both just kind of did what we wanted to do. and and uh, But we also really enjoyed doing things with each other. And we had separate finances and, you know, it was just like, I don't know how to describe it, but it was for being in a long-term relationship, we were both pretty independent. And we were just married until 2018. Yeah. And then as, and so with the diagnosis and as things started to progress, we had to become more and more entwined and more and more dependent on each other. And we just hit a point where even just for financial planning and things like that, it was just like everything had to come together. Um, And then at some point we decided to get married too. And so now we're in this relationship where we are totally enmeshed in each other's lives. (laughs) And there's like no barriers and no privacy. And we've had people comment about how we're so attuned to each other now in a way that we've never been. And so there's been good things and bad things about that, where we, we both have lost the ability to independently go and do things away from each other. But on the other hand, I still really like him better than pretty much anybody else. So well, That's good news. Being, being forced to spend this much time with him is not exactly a terrible thing. So. We're obviously having this conversation. You alluded to COVID and the pandemic that we're all living through. How has that changed things? How how have you been? How what adjustments have you had to make? You know, quarantining, isolating. Uh, how has how has the pandemic impacted your your day to day? Well, day to day wise, for the biggest impact I think has been on our social life. That kind of came to a, a, an end, and then we slowly had to start to rebuild that. And then um, as far as we probably got out almost every day, went either for a stroll, you know, um, for a drive somewhere or to a store. Yeah, even if it was just a grocery store. And uh, so we stopped doing that. And we, mm-hmm. we started having initially family and neighbors come and do errands for us. And then um, slowly the, uh, what, the Instacart thing or the, you know, we started. Yeah, for thinking. the first three months, Instacart was not an option. You couldn't even book a delivery. It was. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a list of eight different households that I could contact anybody in those households and they would shop for us and pick things up. Oh, nice. So me, it's kind of changed everything and nothing. Our daily routine is pretty much the same, except we don't go out. 
in, in the afternoon or go places. We don't meet friends for dinner. We don't go to their houses. They don't come here very much. We don't go to support groups. We don't go. To, the support groups are all virtual now instead of in person. So mm-hmm. we used to go to a support group but the, the first Wednesday of every month where we had to deal with friends that lived near where the support group was that we would go to our support group when we got done, we'd go over to their house and then we'd either have dinner at their place or we'd go out to dinner somewhere. And we've been doing that for like three years. So now it's like the support group doesn't happen in that location. It happens virtually. And what we finally ended up doing after a couple of months is we got a hold of our friends and said, why don't you guys just come over here the first Wednesday? So we eat dinner now in the backyard, physically distanced from each other, but we still get to visit and see each other in person. Mm. But it's as when this first started, it was like, okay, you know, so before all this started, I was hitting a point where I was really starting to struggle with caregiving and just feeling overwhelmed. And his bull bar was starting to really manifest itself in things that were definitely changing our routine. And I had told all the kids back at Christmas that, yeah, things are changing. You guys right now are coming every other Sunday to help. I need you guys to start coming every Sunday. And they were like, okay. And a couple of girlfriends had... Uh, agreed to be my kind of coordinators, admin assistants for volunteers, and I was going to start having people come over to the house two or three days a week and just help me with things or just like wash the dishes, sweep, dust, mop floors, you know, something, anything to just make it to free up a little bit of time so I wasn't constantly doing things. And I could actually, right. I mean, all I've been doing was treading water and I wasn't making progress on anything that needed to be done around the house or in the yard or anything. And we didn't really have much time left over for fun. And so that was all starting to get rolling in January and February. And then COVID hit. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that all scraped so home. And we were like, okay, well, you know, it's going to be two or three months, you know, maybe at the worst. But by summer, everything will be fine. And the nice weather will be happening. And we can, you know, pick up our routines and we can get the helpers back in here. And I'll just have to knuckle down for a couple of months and just, you know, keep on doing everything on my own. But by May, it was very clear that that was not going to be happening and that this pandemic was going to be something that was going to be an issue for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we started kind of redoing the social things outside where the rules are that if you're in the house, you need to be wearing a mask and we aren't going to let you be in here for very long. Sure. And then outside, <laughs> my joke is, if your cheeks are in the seat and you're sitting far enough apart, you can take off your mask. <laughs> That's a good and, rule. But if you're going to get up, that mask had better be on. Right, right. And we limit company to two people at a time. Well, and then okay. what about the uh, all the home health? Right, and 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 home health has been able to continue, so that's been good. But yeah, it, it it's kind of like we're down the end of the summer. Donnie gets cold very easily. And we usually keep the house like at 77, 78 degrees. And he can be comfortable outside in cooler temperatures for only a limited amount of time. So mm-hmm. in the last month, we're kind of going, holy cow. You know, we still haven't gotten anything done like around the house and the yard. We have some maintenance things that need to happen. 
we've got to get people in here while I can still take Donnie outside and he can be comfortable outside. Mm-hmm. Because pretty soon here in Oregon, it's going to start getting cold and wet, and that's not going to be an option anymore. But then and we're going to be back to limiting how many people can come over, and I don't think we're going to be able to continue with doing dinners either because I don't think we'd be able to do it and keep them comfortable. So I'm really not looking forward to this winter. I think it's going to be tough. Just socially, just getting things done, things like that. It's going to be even harder than last yeah yeah um, emotionally last spring it was like this is a short-term thing this year coming into it i know it's going to be more of a long-term thing yeah and that's been the same kind of challenging thought process for so many families like yours that are facing als and and hoping that the uh, the pandemic would have subsided by now something we all hoped for but knowing that we're heading into a fall and winter where you know further isolation and quarantine may be necessary and just trying to think through as you said, everything that needs to be done around your home, groceries that need to be shopped for, errands that need to be run, and home health considerations, it's a lot. And again, I, I can't imagine kind of what the two of you have to discuss on a, a weekly basis about, all right, how are we going to achieve these goals knowing what we're up against? Well, the biggest worry has been uh, of something. So I, I because of, of the progression I've been having a lot of uh, problem with uh, choking. Mm. And so there's a lot of discussion about what happens if I have, you know, a blockage in my lungs that we can't clear out and I have to go to the emergency room. Mm. And that's one of the scariest prospects that they would separate us or... uh, so we have a pact that if Donnie goes to the hospital, I will not leave his side. Mm. Over the years, through support groups, and then we're also members of some ALS groups on Facebook. We heard a lot of accounts from people in hospitals, and our impression is that for the most part, in spite of all their training, most ALS hospitals, most hospitals really don't understand ALS, particularly the respiratory side. And then there's things like he's got a trilogy respirator with all of his settings. We, we know that for Donnie, his lungs are perfectly healthy. The problem is that he doesn't have any muscles to control his diaphragm. So mechanically, he needs help breathing. But once air is moving in and out of his lungs, his lungs work great. But if he were to get COVID, it would probably be life-ending. If he were to be in a hospital alone and they were worried about his oxygen levels, they would probably give him oxygen. But if they didn't keep him on the respirator, he would suffocate. Mm -hmm. And when he had his peg tube surgery, his feeding tube surgery three years ago, he was on a respiratory ward. And the nurses there had never seen a trilogy set up the way his was set up. It was zip and puff. So you would think, the respiratory ward nurses in the hospital that sponsors our ALS clinic would be really on top of things, but they're not. Yeah. You know, there's just too wide of a variety of things that they deal right. with for them to know I, everything all the time. I asked, uh, we asked pulmonologists if I did have to go into the emergency room, how do you think they would handle it? So, and he says, well, if you show up there with respiratory issues, they're going to first consider that you have COVID. 
might have COVID and that's how you'll be treated the same way. So in but theory, they said you would go probably go into a, a private room and and I'm pretty sure he said that we could get Jan to go in with me. Right. It, it, but we're kind of at the mercy of what's going on with COVID at the time we hit the hospital. So if things are relatively quiet, they would probably let me self-isolate with Donnie as long as I stayed in the room, did not go out in the hallway, and did not leave the hospital type of thing. But if COVID's really heating up at the time we get to the hospital, they may not even let me go in the doors. And Donnie has already told me, unless he's changed his mind, that he'd rather not even be admitted if that's the case. Yeah. Hmm. Um, not really separated. Yeah. And we are also, we've been at a point for a long time because of Donnie's respiratory status where when I'm not with him, he gets a little bit panicky because he feels like I have this depth of experience with him and we have a way of communicating when he's in trouble that he knows I am, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to understand what he needs, but nobody else would have that. And so he gets pretty nervous that, if I'm not around and something happened, that well-meaning people would do things that would probably result in him either being dead or brain dead, and that's a, a serious risk. So yeah, it's a scary thought. It's a really it scary is. thought. And, and we just kind of live with this level of understanding that this is that risk that we've got, but and we usually don't dwell on it a lot. But when you stop mm-hmm. and think about it, yeah, it's, that's what we live with. So. You know, two words that keep coming back to me throughout the pandemic and in in so many of the conversations that that we've had on the show and just in life are anxiety and isolation. And it sounds like the two of you are doing your best to manage the added anxiety of COVID, now the wildfires that are down the road. And you talked quite a bit about the changing social norms and the challenges of, of interacting with people. But what advice would you offer to folks out there listening who are, are struggling to figure out how to manage this new level of anxiety and isolation that is now part of our lives? Um, well, I think that um, the more you know, the, the less anxiety you have. So um, really knowing um, kind of a lot about what what you're dealing with. Um, Having a a plan, an evacuation plan. I mean, we've even thought down to, but if the house were on fire, you know, and I'm in bed, you know what to do. Wow. Type thing, so you got to really plan for everything. You know, it's the best... uh, we don't do it all at once, just as things come up and it's like, oh, never thought of that before. The best so defense is good offense, so that's about being prepared. Sure. And um, talking with your health professionals and getting their advice on what to do, I think that helps a lot. That makes a big difference. Yeah, I, I also kind of feel like knowledge is power and 
we've talked with his nutritionist, we've talked with his pulmonologist and his doctor and the nurses at the Ellis Clinic about what would happen if he were to need to go to the hospital with COVID. Well, it's not just that. What if we have to evacuate? Or if we, yeah. And so basically, you know, when, when things come up and we're presented with the possibility of something, or even if we just like see something on TV or somebody else mentions it, it's kind of like, oh, what would make sense for us to do? And we kind of, you know, keep that conversation going and, and work on it until we both feel kind of satisfied with it. And then literally once the plan is made, then I just kind of stop worrying about it. And um, But also think, keeping up on, on, like, the COVID news. The, you know, the more they, time goes on, the more they learn about this. So we've adjusted what we do. You know, and so, you know, they've learned, you know, how airborne it is. And, that's why we, you know, try and do everything with people outside. Right. And, uh, you know. But it's also not something that's like ever present in our minds. I mean, for me, it's, no. it's kind of like, I, I joke that a little bit of denial goes a long way. It's like, once I feel like things are prepared mm -hmm. enough, then I just try to compartmentalize and set that aside and just like, okay, so what do we need to be, you know, we have our day to day we need to do, so. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just hearing the two of you talk about the situation in a matter of fact way and just go through your plans for these various contingencies and situations, I'm in awe of your resiliency and, you know, your ability to maintain cool heads in such a difficult time for your family. So really, thank you so much for being willing to share that level of detail. And I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate that advice. Well, I'd say some of the things that we're doing um, beyond just, you know, having, uh, you know, a few people at a time visit distance and outside, we've also started uh, with the families actually from around the Oh, states. yeah. We're, we're doing a once a week Zoom call where we play Yahtzee. We all visit for the uh -huh. hour. Oh, that's and then great. we play Yahtzee because all you need are five dice and a score sheet, and you can download those. So you gotta try and reinvent ways to to adapt to this uh, situation. I got a right. Yahtzee subscription, not Yahtzee Zoom subscription. So we're just finding it easy to be able to like, you know, sometimes we'll be on the phone with somebody and we'll say, Hey, this would be a lot more fun to do this, you know, where we can see each other. And so we'll just start a zoom call real quick. Yeah. That creativity and those communication tools are so key being able to stay connected, even if you're at a distance, uh, really, really important in times like this. Yeah. Yeah. We did another thing that we usually oh, are yeah. part of the instigators for our neighborhood block party. Hmm. And we couldn't do that this year. And I was really agonizing over it quite a bit because we usually do a potluck dinner and then there's a party at another neighbor's house where we hire a band and there's dancing and oh, wow. BYOB and it's always a lot of fun and everybody looks forward to it. And it was like, well, you know what? There's going to be people that aren't worried at all about COVID that, you know, think everybody's overreacting. And then there's going to be people like us that are like, no, we need to take this seriously and we aren't comfortable with being too close to other people or being in a crowd. Sure. So I didn't feel like we could do the normal party. So 
what we came up with was the idea of, of doing some shared experiences. So we posted. Everybody walks up and down the street. We have a lot more people walking through our neighborhood right now because of COVID. Uh-huh. A lot of people sure. at home. And we're on a very we're in a very walkable neighborhood, and our street is a connector street between two halves of the neighborhood. So a lot of people walk up and down our streets specifically just to be able to get from one part to the other. And then years ago, a neighbor left peacocks here, so there's peacocks in the neighborhood, and so we have people coming by to see the peacocks. So lots of foot traffic. So I yeah. posted some big signs out on our garage door saying, "Let's make our own art walk." I posted a bunch of taped a bunch of coloring book pages up on the door of peacocks have peacocks ah. and told people take a coloring page take it home color it post it at your house so that as we walk around the neighborhood we can all admire each other's artwork oh. and we i kept refilling the garage door all through august and then the art walk was officially labor day weekend and by the time it was done there were probably a good two dozen coloring book pages that we found and we knew that there were at least that many more in the neighborhood we just couldn't figure out where they all were because some of the roads here are really rough and i couldn't get down and up and down those streets and we had other people that said they were taking the pages and they told us where they lived but they never posted them their kids just enjoyed coloring them and that was good (laughs) yeah oh that's a great idea what a really interesting way to bring the community together through art you know, at a time when it's not possible to be physically uh, in the same space. That's a really, really clever idea. Yeah. Well, Donnie and Jan, again, thank you so much uh, for your time and for your insight into what the pandemic has been like for your family living with ALS and how you've been able to cope during a very, very challenging 2020. Just we appreciate you being on with us today. Well, thank you again to Donnie Graham and Jan Steinbach for sharing their inspiring story of how they're getting through 2020 and all the curveballs that have been thrown their way on top of living with ALS. You know, Donnie and Jan talked about their preparedness given the wildfires that are just down the road from them. And we, of course, will share in our show notes some of the emergency preparedness resources that the ALS Association has available so listeners can have those at the ready. Because, you know, Mike, as as 2020 has taught most of us, I never know what's around the corner. Yeah, yeah. You never know what to expect. The hits seem to just keep on coming. And to any of our listeners that are on the West Coast impacted by those uh, fires like Donnie and Jan, our, our thoughts are with you, and we hope that you and your families uh, come through this ordeal safely. And with that, uh, we'll close the show by reminding you to uh, please subscribe to the podcast at ConnectingALS.org or wherever you listen, and to follow us on Facebook and Twitter for the latest updates. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. We will connect with you again soon. Bye.